At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 661st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is working to reduce agricultural nitrogen runoff into our rivers and oceans. We're talking with Abby Schaefer about wood chip bioreactors. Abby is a research scientist and engineer in Michelle Supier's Water Quality Research Lab in the Agricultural and Biosystems Engineering Department at Iowa State University. Abby solves water quantity and quality problems and loves microbes, data analysis, and programming. She is the 2020 American Society of Agricultural and Biological Engineers Pre-Professional Engineer of the Year. Congratulations. And her research recently was published in Agrosystems, Geosciences, and the Environment. Welcome to the show today. Abby, are you ready to rock bioreactors? I'm so ready to rock. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? I'd love to. So I actually grew up on a farm in Iowa. We grow corn and soybeans and we have cows. So the high school that I went to was really little. So I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, (laughs) And so I had really liked chemistry in high school. So when I went to college, that's kind of what I thought I'd study. And I was enjoying my chemistry classes at school. But after probably about halfway through freshman year, I took a step back and I was like, what am I actually going to do with this? And so I started looking to pivot into engineering. So then I just started, I literally was looking through Iowa State's catalog of majors being like, what the heck am I going to do? And I landed on biosystems engineering because it required the most chemistry, oddly, out of any of the engineering programs. And I didn't want to waste the classes that I had already taken. And luckily enough for me, the emphasis in the department on sustainability and water quality and soil health like really fit in with what I kind of had decided that I liked and kind of wanted to do. And from there, I I just loved every second in the department in undergrad, and I decided I couldn't get enough of it. And I was working at the time as a technician in Dr. Supier's lab. And mm-hmm. so I just said, hey, like, let's keep going. Like, let's keep going with this. So I ended up doing my I'm doing my master's. Well, by the time this airs, I will be done. But uh-huh. that's congratulations. Kind of Thank you. That's kind of how I ended up where you're at. Where I am now. Perfect. Yeah. Tell me what biosystems engineering is. The bio part of the word, that basically means anything that's living. So what we are trained to do is we will work with any living system, whether that's, you know, a single cell or that could be a whole watershed. You know, some of the people that I graduated college with, they're doing a wide range of things. They're working with renewable fuels or they're water resources engineers, 
which means that they're more involved in like stream and ecosystem mm. restoration. Mm -hmm. So it could be a lot of things that you do. Our program is very broad. It's kind of similar how to how mechanical engineers basically work with any type of machine. I'm sorry if you're listening to it, this and you're a mechanical engineer, you're like, that's not what I do. <laughs> oh, but biosystems great. engineers, we work with anything that's living. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. And so there must have been a spark that happened for you around water quality. I bet that it has to do with that you grew up on the farm. Yes. If you are from northeastern Iowa, you have heard of the floods in 1993 and I'm old enough that I remember the floods of 2008. I remember those as like oh my gosh there's a problem I say, here. Yeah like what's going on but I remember it being a major news event when I was growing up and so I think that always kind of like stuck with me must have like hit me at the right age I guess mm -hmm. but that's what I'm ended up doing so and then another thing is that in 2016, I did a study abroad program in Peru, mm -hmm. and that's when I started getting really interested in water as something I could do, because in Peru, specifically in Lima, there are informal sediments that have like built up around the city, and the outermost ones do not have running water, and how they get their water is on trucks. And it costs more to truck the water in than if you have running, actual running water. Mm -hmm. And so like viewing that burden of people who are the marginalized people, they have the higher financial burden for their water. Yeah. I was like, something seems wrong here about this picture. And so I started looking into that as more generally water and the environment as something that I could do as a career. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so I have a lot of background in the nitrogen cycle and okay. the nitrogen. Well, could you just tell everybody what that is from your perspective? Yeah. So nitrogen, it's a chemical element. So if we th like think back to our chemistry classes, it's a something that makes up other stuff in the world. Yeah. And it usually comes, it usually comes from manure, right? Wastewater yep. manure. Yeah. Manure. So nitrogen, I like to think of it as a very flexible element. So it, comes in lots of different flavors in the environment. Mm -hmm. And what's really cool about it is a lot of the changes between these different flavors, they are, they're driven by microorganisms. Mm. Yeah. So I'm very into that. And a lot of times there are soil microorganisms that are doing these transformations and plants and humans, we need nitrogen to survive. And it's one of the building blocks that helps us grow. So it's very important that we can provide nitrogen to the plants like in Iowa when we're trying to grow them or in other places. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the form of nitrogen that we are applying isn't the best for our water because different forms of nitrogen, these flavors that I was talking about are more soluble in water than others. Mm -hmm. And that Specifically, one form is called nitrate. So it's a nitrogen with some oxides attached to it. And what's happening then is we're just basically overpowering our fields and runoff with this excess nitrogen, which is mm -hmm. what we call fertilizer. And then it's yep. ending up in the Gulf of Mexico and causing all kinds of problems. Yes, basically. Yes. So yeah, one thing that we do in Iowa for our corn and soybean fields is 
we apply the nitrogen not at the peak time when the corn or soybeans are trying to grow and need it. That means when it rains, the other thing that we do in Iowa that increases our agricultural productivity is we drain our fields. We have too much water in Iowa. Yes. And so the combination of this fertilizer being applied at the wrong time, which is for various reasons, it's not just for no reason that it's applied at those times, but, and the combination of that with these tile drains that we have, Mm -hmm. it just is this perfect storm for nitrogen runoff to occur. So what is a wood chip bioreactor? So those tile drains that I talked about, we can actually intercept the water and we, how we do that is we can dig a trench or a really big pit Mm -hmm. and we can fill it with wood chips and we can kind of retain that tile drainage water in there for a time. And the wood chips, they make a habitat for these good microorganisms, the denitrifying bugs that we love. They will live in there. They will consume the wood chips as their fuel to do denitrification and it will remove all the nasties, the nitrates from the water. <laughs> nice. I yep. like that. And it reduces the impact of a, our agricultural practices on the environment. Nice. So basically what you're doing is you're rerouting that water, mm-hmm. putting it into these great big basins that are full of just plain old wood chips. Yep. And nature takes over yep. in the form of the nitrogen cycle, yep. which has got my nitrosomos, nitrobacter bacteria and all kinds of fun stuff like that in it, right? Yep. This is coming, exactly. this is like 40 years ago for me. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's eating all up, the, all the nasties up so that yep. when the water comes out the other end, it's a lot cleaner. Yes, exactly. Wow. Here's what I got to know. How did you figure this out? How I discovered it is that at Iowa State, on our research farm, we have nine of these at the pilot scale. Mm-hmm. So this is like a really cool opportunity to study Ah. wood chip bioreactors and so like no one else has a research setup like this and so I saw this opportunity to kind of get in while the getting's good and do some research and I have a I had two very supportive mentors at Iowa State that were willing to support me in my research that is always amazing my professor for my master's degree at Arizona State University was a rock star yeah. Yeah. So it, mentors are amazing. I have some and I mentor people. So mm-hmm. for all you out there listening, you should get a mentor and you should mentor people because it's it makes you feel good, right? Yes. Yeah. I'll co-sign that. What is that preventing? By cleaning the water that is draining from our agricultural fields, we are preventing in the Gulf of Mexico and other downstream water bodies. Mm-hmm. They're from being an algae bloom. So algae really, really like this extra nitrogen in the water. And they'll grow up to a really high density. They'll be, they're having kind of a pool party. But is it really <laughs> a pool party if they already like live there? I don't know. But Well, they got lots of food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. that's, that's the main recipe for a party, I guess. Yep. But the al- we have a lot of algae. And they're decomposers that consume the algae. And they're, they're also having a party, too. Because lots of nitrogen means lots of algae means... The decomposers are really happy. But when the decomposers are consuming the algae, they use up all the oxygen. So it creates what's called a dead zone. Nothing can live there. It's also called a hypoxic or low oxygen zone. Mm -hmm. 
And this is very detrimental for the ecosystem. So we're preventing that with the wood chip bioreactors. Right, exactly. And how common are wood chip bioreactors? At the last census, approximately, there was estimated there are between 100 and 200 installed in Iowa. Unsure about numbers for other places, but to give you kind of a sense of scale, Iowa has what's called this nutrient reduction strategy and that it kind of basically lays out how we're going to prevent the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico from happening. And that estimates that to meet the water quality goals that Iowa has, we would need thousands of them (laughs) installed. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you is that doesn't seem like a whole lot yet. No. And of course the Nutrient reduction strategy also lays out other options of other things, but I'm interested in the wood chip bioreactors because there's microorganisms at play there. Right, exactly. Yeah. So we have these bioreactors and they're full of these wood chips and say we're running water through them for six months and all Mm -hmm. the wood chips are broken down. They break down to something. What is that something and what do you do with it? So actually, we estimate that these will last for 10 years or more. Really? Yes. So wood chips, they're what we in my field like to refer to as recalcitrant. So that means that they don't easily break down. And that's a good Uh... thing because if they... if the media, the stuff that we are putting in these bioreactors broke down really easily. Mm -hmm. We'd actually be swapping the nitrogen pollution for more of a like carbonaceous carbon pollution problem. Got it. So it's it's good that they break down slowly, Mm -hmm. but as for what we can do with them, it's kind of an interesting question that people are looking at because we haven't had a lot of them that are 10 years or more older. Right. But one thing that people are looking at is whether we can land apply the wood chips after they're spent as a different form of fertilizer, Mm -hmm. because we know we may need a carbon amendment for our soil. You know, that's possible. But well, and I put wood chips in my compost bin. Yeah, exactly. You know, the the wood chips are part of the browns that go into my compost bin and it breaks down after about a year and then that goes on to my garden. Yep. So exactly. All the the toxins in here. What happens to the toxins in this whole bioreactor? What do you mean by toxins? Other than like the nitrates or Yeah, I'm thinking maybe pesticides or herbicides or any anything that's left over that we wouldn't want to put back on our gardens if it was there. Have you done research in that yet? So, I have not. Mm-hmm. But I would assume that other people are looking at like the dissipation rates of those things. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually not sure. I think really what the wood chip bioreactor is doing is it's removing anything that's water soluble. So if you're applying a pesticide that's not water soluble, Mm. it's probably not going to end up in the wood chip bioreactor because it didn't flow through our tile drains. Got it. To get there. Got it. Got it. So I had something happen in the past week or so for me. I I got my master's degree and I actually presented a paper that I wrote on urban agriculture at the Ball State University conference probably in 2004. And I remember just in the past day or two, I pulled that book, you know, Mm -hmm. because it got published in a book. I pulled that book off of the shelf and it was like, wow, 
and I was kind of patting myself on the back. It's like that yeah. was pretty cool that I that was a that was a significant paper for me, anyways. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I before we started today, I typed in your name and wood chip bioreactors, and wouldn't you know, the first thing that came up was your paper mm-hmm. online. So I was reading through it, and first of all, congratulations, Thank that you so rocks. Much. Tell me about the paper that was published. Yes. So I already mentioned our nine wood chip bioreactors that we have at Iowa State. Mm-hmm. And specifically what we're trying to study with those is basically the amount of time that the water spends in the wood chip bioreactor. So we have basically three different settings of this flow rate, if you will, of water. Mm-hmm. If we, ah. So we have two hours, eight hours, and 16 hours. And those that's just the retention time, how, how long the water is contacting the wood chips. Yeah. And what we wanted to look at in my paper is whether those three settings, whether they're impacting the properties of the wood chips differently. And so when I say properties, I, I mean the chemical composition. So wood chips are have carbon and nitrogen in them. So we're looking at that basically as a measure of how quickly do these decompose over time when they're consumed by the denitrifying mm-hmm. bugs. We also looked at the size of the wood chips and we also kind of looked at the path that the water takes through the wood chips, but that's more related to hydraulics, yeah. if you will. And what I think the really cool thing is, is that we did see differences in the degree of decomposition of the wood chips based on the setting, this flow rate that they're operating at. And we think that's related to the nitrogen loading rate. So basically, like how big of a piece of cake is yep. each one it's, getting? Yeah, exactly. The, so the more flow, the more nitrogen. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. It's really exciting. Yeah, it's a really big deal. That's, that's awesome. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. So my like first semester, this is going to be like literal failure, like failed to test, is that my first semester doing engineering, if my mom is listening, you might want to just turn this off because <laughs> nice. I got a 55 on a statics exam. And th- at that point, I was like, okay, like really I had to sit down and be like, self, I can do this because I am sitting in a classroom with all men and I'm like, okay, like I know I can do this. Like I just need to devote the time, like stop making excuses. And so that's what I did. And I think really think that because I was a straight A student prior to this. Uh And I really think that if I hadn't had that opportunity, I think I would always would have been afraid of failure. Well, I said opportunity, but I always would have been afraid of it if it hadn't happened like right away at college. And after it happened, I was like, okay, I got that out of the way. And now I can <laughs> nice. move on. Yeah. And this is the reason I asked this question is because it's, it's, it's not failure. It's a learning experience. And it sounds yeah. like you just knocked it out of the park after that. Yeah. So got it out of the way. Nice. And what do you consider your biggest success? So far, my biggest success will be getting my master's degree. Mm-hmm. This has been like a goal of mine for probably three or four years now mm-hmm. at this point. So something that, you know, I think it's going to feel really good when I, after I defend my thesis and have everything done. Yeah. Are you thinking about a PhD? Did my advisor pay you to ask that? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. I know. They did the same thing to me. It's like, yeah, I hear you. Okay, good. I got that answer. <laughs> and what drives you? Really? It's people. So I, like every day that I, uh, every day I wake up and I know that by 
working on environmental problems, it's going to make life better for people in my community, people mm -hmm. in communities that are far away from mine, like, you know, Louisiana, where the Gulf is. And that it's just a really good feeling to believe in my work, I guess, that way. Yeah, right. It makes you feel good. It's, it's like yeah. what gets you up in the morning, right? Exactly. Yeah. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? So I think everyone should read I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and A Grander View of Life by Ed Young. And I think when I read it, I was already very into microbes when I read it. So it was kind of like, you know, confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. But the perspective, I think, of other scientists and the microbes that they study and like how they're important, like humans have impacted the world and the environment a lot but microbes are also doing a lot of things that maybe we don't even notice every single day right you brought this up a couple of times what do you love about microbes what what draws you there how ubiquitous they are they're everywhere oh yeah doing all <laughs> kinds of things yeah doing really cool different things and if you read the book i think it'll explain more yeah well thanks elaine ingham is a soil scientist and she you know, basically her work boils down to, and this is a big stretch that I'm saying it boils down to this because she's so mm -hmm. amazing. But in farming and gardening, she says, if you have enough microbes, if you have the right microbes in the soil, you actually don't have to fertilize. Yeah. You know, the, if there's enough soil life going on there, fertilizers are not required. Mm -hmm. And it's because of the life in the soil, right? Exactly. What one final piece of advice would you have for our listeners? I am not very old. So I think that like most of my experience like stems from being a college student. But if you are listening to this and you are thinking about going to college, or if you're listening and you know someone that's going to college, you need to hear that it is okay to not know what you're going to do and you will figure it out and it will be okay. Yeah. Because that's what happened to me. And I'm now I'm on a podcast and I have a paper published and I have my master's degree. <laughs> nice. Well, and another story. So my listeners know I have lots of stories. I actually went straight out of high school to college. Mm -hmm. And in 1981, I'd been out of college, out of high school for two years. And in 1981, I was at Arizona, Arizona State University. And my grade average was 0. 0.5. Yeah. That was two D's and an F. And my mm -hmm. dad said to me, oh my gosh, I got it. You don't want to be in college. But the thing is, I never stopped learning. Right. You know, I never stopped learning back, you know, fast forward 20 years and I'm going back to ASU and I actually had 127 credit hours that I transferred yeah. in because every time I was interested in something, you know, I'd go to Phoenix College, which is a local community college and I'd take a class. Exactly. So exactly. love that piece of advice. And, you know, sometimes it takes us 20 years, right? sometimes it takes not, not that much time at all. Yeah. There's no timeline. Your own timeline is rel relative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to my stories, number one, and number two, for coming on and sharing your story. It's amazing. Congratulations. I am so incredibly proud of what you're doing. And it's millennials that I run into an interview like you that actually give me hope for the future of our planet. So thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I've had a blast. It sounds like it, both in your life and today. Yes, exactly. <laughs> How can our listeners get a hold of you? You can email me, and I think my email will be in the show notes, but it's A-E-S-C-H-A-E-F at Outlook.com. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash bioreactor. 
We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.